And there we are. So we're in Exodus 12, and we'll start up. I'm actually going to start up on verse 6 and then skip to 12 just for context a little bit. Um, last week there was so much to take in, even as the teacher. There's just a lot to take in when it comes to Passover and the symbolism that's there. So God's birthed a new nation. It's been 400 plus 30 years um, that they've been, so 430 years that they've been there. Um, God gives progressively clearer chances to the Egyptian to the Egyptians that he is God. And the Egyptians harden their hearts, especially Pharaoh. And then God kind of hardens their heart to finish so that he can make this image. Judgment is coming to everyone. Death is coming to everyone. It's like the trailer for the movie, Death is Coming, right? And uh, we saw last time we met this... Passover. And in verse 6, it says, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, the month of Nisan, their beginning month or their head of months. And then the whole assembly of the congregational Israel shall kill it at twilight. Um, it being the lamb. And, and I loved verse 6 because when they put it in the singular, it makes sense for us Christians, but it would have seemed to be a typo for the Jewish people for centuries. And I run into that a lot when people say there's errors in the Bible. And I just, that part just really stood out to me. It might not be an error. It might be that we don't know the full meaning of what that is. That there's something in there that's actually not a translation error. It's exactly how God wanted it to be. Another verse like that, if you look at verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5, and these are just things that stand out to me to show the perfection of the Word of God. And we got all the way through Genesis, and I'm still waiting to find these mistakes that are all over the Bible. They're not there. It's a lie. And the people that say that are generally people that don't read the Bible. So people that do read the Bible become more and more excited about how perfect it is, what a document is. Look at verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5, for instance. In verse 3, it's a lamb. In verse 4, it's the lamb. And in verse 5, it's your lamb. Do you see that progression? This isn't just a lamb. It's not any old lamb. It's the lamb that's going to be the sacrifice for your home. And it's not just the lamb, it's your lamb. And I think this is really cool because each of them are more exclusive and it makes me think of the Messiah. So it's not just a savior or someone who saves people, right? It's the savior. We get it down to one individual, right? And it's not just the savior because you can know who Jesus is and not follow him. So in that case, it's the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But when it's your Savior, it's this personal, intimate thing, and that's what saves you. A lamb doesn't save you. The lamb doesn't save you. Your lamb saves you. It's the intimate relationship with that lamb that matters so much. And we talked about Fluffy the lamb, our imaginary lamb that we took into our home and our household. And that's kind of where we're picking up. At verse 12, God apparently repeats himself and explains the whole thing all over again. And you'd think, Dickers, this is a really quick Bible study tonight. We can just reread it. It's just a redundancy. But I want to parse this out because in chapter 12, if you go from verse 3, a lamb, all the way through verse 11, or actually verse 13, you get you get a complete and total picture of what Passover is. But then in verse 14, do you see that? It's like it starts all over again. So either God is repeating himself, the, there's, this is a mistake of some sort, or there's something we're supposed to see in these different descriptions that's relevant. 
And that's what I want to try to suss out tonight. So verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Introductions finished. Now the blood shall be a sign for you, the blood, not just any blood, um, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you and destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Death is coming to everybody, but God's going to pass over all the homes. And notice it's not just Hebrews in this description, right? I'm going to come through the land of Egypt. Everyone is going to have death coming to their doorstep. In this case, though, there's going to be children that have the blood that cover them, and that's going to make them separate. It says, against all the gods. We know this because we've just got done going through Exodus, right? The purpose of this is God is showing himself as dominion over all the earth, all the gods, all the stuff that you can, all the idols or idol activities we can waste our time on. God's bigger than those things and the Lord of it. The introduction, I am the Lord. I just love it when it's like, I am, I mean, it kind of comes with like music when you read it almost. Like this is this exclamation point. Now the blood that's acceptable shall cover things. So we move on from here. The sheep is going to go. I, another thing that kind of occurred to me this time is when you're going, when you bring a lamb into your house, remember the Egyptians don't like shepherds. They're dirty, they're unclean. So the only people that don't have boils and, and the scars of boils all over them are these Hebrews, and they're taking lambs into their house, every single household. For the Egyptians, none of this makes sense. And you'd think they would either mock them for, why are you putting blood on your doorpost? Like, it doesn't make sense. It's just an act of faith. We're doing it because God said to do it. Um, and this is how we're going to get saved. And you'd think that that's something that is odd, but these particulars, these details, are things that the Jewish people are going to do for centuries based on faith. It's this thing you do for faith. And in the end, when death comes, they're going to be proved right. In their case, they get proved right at midnight the same night. In our case, we don't get proved right until Jesus returns. But we're still doing something like living under the blood of the Lamb. That's an odd thing to say to a non-believer. But we're doing it on faith. It's because that's what God says is going to save us. So we do it. And we're go- and at some point when God returns, we'll be proved right when every knee bows and every tongue confesses. So moving forward, this is the second description of what they can do. It's a much simpler description. It's more direct. And it highlights, the first highlights the blood of the lamb and eating the lamb and all of that. But notice what how the lamb is almost left out of the second description of Passover. Verse 14. So, this day shall be to you as a memorial. You're going to remember something. And you shall keep a fe- keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. One week. And on the first day you shall remove all the leaven from your houses. Whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. That sounds so harsh. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. And on the seventh day, there shall be a holy convocation for you. A holy assembly, meeting, reading that gets done. So you're going to have church on the first day and the seventh day. No matter of what work shall be done by them, but that which everyone must eat that only can be prepared by you. So the only work that's allowed during this time is making the meals. You got to stop all work. It's a total holiday. This had to sound wonderful to the Jewish people that had just been slaves 
for this amount of time. And the last 30 years we know has been really harsh, right? They're killing babies, the midwives, all this sort of thing. So take a week off. Well, and this is also more than the three days Moses was requesting. So for some people, this is great news. So again, I always picture these households, these little families doing this. And the little kid, the little Jewish kid would ask, why are we doing all this? And this is the passage that they're going to get read to. This is what the parents will go to and say, this is why we do this. You know, they'll pull out the scroll and they'll read it. A lot like kids today, we do Christmas. And at some point, Christian parents tell their kids the meaning of Christmas and what it's about. That's what Passover is. You're supposed to tell your kids the meaning of Passover. And here's what it is. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This one focuses on leaven. Uh, Leaven through the rest of the Bible is going to be symbolic of sin. Just like fire is symbolic of purity. Um, Water is symbolic of cleansing. Uh, sin is going to be symbolized by leaven, which is a corrupting agent you put into your bread dough. Bread dough is perfectly okay by itself, but you put basically leaven in it and it creates a gas just like your stomach does. So essentially, the bubbles in bread are the same product you make when you eat things. It's a corrupting agent that brings a gas into the bread, but that also makes the bread fluffy because you get these little holes that can't escape in it and you make fluffy bread. Unleavened bread then is just like saltine crackers. So you shall remove this leaven and get out of there. So God's already saved them, right? This is a description that's, the Passover is being assumed in the second description. They're already saved. Then they're supposed to get the leaven out of their house. And Jewish kids would play like this little game and they would run around the house. Have you heard about this about Jewish people? They'd run all over the house and they'd try to find the leaven. So parents would, the Jewish parents would hide little treats all over the house, a lot like we do with Easter eggs, right? And the kids would have to go find them all. But the purpose of this is to get your little hyper-energy kids to make sure there's no leaven in your house because if there's leaven, you get cut off from Israel. You're not supposed to have this stuff in your house. So they would look into cupboards. They'd seach every nook and cranny of their household and get it out in the same way after we fall under the blood of Jesus Christ, symbolically, we're supposed to get sin out of our life. And you look in every nook and cranny of your life, you get it out. And you stop doing those things that God says you're not supposed to be doing. So verse 15, in fact, is going to be like, put it away, get it out of your life. It's something you shouldn't have. Remove all of it. Romans 6, I'm going to jump forward into the New Testament. Romans 6, they build on this concept for Christians. What shall I say then? Shall we continue to sin after you're saved? Are you supposed to sin so grace can abound in your life? Certainly not. How then? How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or how do you not know that many, as many of us that were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death too? That death is the sacrifice of the Lamb. That's Passover, right? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. We should be getting the leaven out of our life. We're supposed to be walking differently after we're saved than before. Matthew 16, Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So one of the chief accusations Jesus made of the religious leaders is that they were leaven that they had leaven. That's an odd little passage unless you understand Passover. He's talking to a Jewish audience. They know what the leaven is because every year since they were little kids, you get the leaven out of your house. You get the sin out of your house. 
Exodus uh, 13:7, we're not even supposed to kind of look at it. And that's Jesus's definition of holiness is you're not even supposed to be around this stuff unless your holiness exceeds that of the Pharisees. You're not holy enough. In other words, none of us are that holy. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, this is kind of interesting. Because um, I'm interested, what's the sin? What's the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? I want to avoid that if I can. And Jesus says, beware of that. Get rid of it. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were two leading groups of people in the Jewish community that argued with each other all the time, right? It was the Democrats and the Republicans, and only in a religious sense, right? So the Sadducees believed the Bible was literal, and every word in it was exactly what it meant to say. They didn't believe there was a resurrection. There's no afterlife. There's no spirits. Um, there is... Uh, Essentially, the Sadducees were the kind of intelligentsia, the worldly people, the professors of the world. And then you had the Pharisees, and they were the local pastors, so to speak. There were Pharisees in all the different towns. Their job was to keep these oral traditions, not the word of God, but our interpretation of the word of God. Sound familiar? And they believed there was a resurrection, that there was an afterlife, that there were spirits, that there were local pastors, and that were fighting against the world in that sense. And they would kind of be preaching fire and brimstone back in their congregations. Well, the Sadducees and Pharisees argued with each other. And Jesus is watching this argument, and that's the sin that they both have. When he says, beware the sin of these two groups, the sin that they shared, because they're so different in other regards, is that they shared this idea that they both thought they were right. They both thought that they were more holy and understood things better than the other group to the point where they were exclusive of each other. In fact, Paul uses the resurrection argument to save his skin in, in Jerusalem when he's arguing to not have them kill him, right? And he says, well, I just believe in the resurrection. And then the Pharisees and the Sadducees just start arguing with each other. And, they, and the heat comes off of Paul a little bit. So... Jesus says in Matthew 5:20, for I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Loving God has to come with some level of mystery. And that's the Passover. There's some mystery to this. They don't understand why they're wiping blood on door frames and why they're killing Fluffy the lamb. And they're doing it because God said so. And they have to have some faith in doing that. And God actually honors that faith of not knowing why they're doing something, but they do it anyways. Why do we call on the name of Jesus? Because God says that's what we need to do to get saved. How do we verify that? And the Passover is how we verify it. Historically, this has happened. God has sorted his people before. And with Noah and the flood, he sorted Noah's family from the rest of the world. He's done it before. He's going to do it again. Either you believe that or you don't. And that's part of the, the core of our faith or our tradition of faith. And the Pharisees and Sadducees start bickering with each other when they should be getting along with each other and living out as in common and in unity as Jewish people under this kind of practice that's being established here in Exodus 12. God has a plan for us to be sin-free, and we need to be seeking out how to do that. Instead of arguing with each other about theological points, we should be helping each other get sin out of our life. That's the goal of believers when we hang out together. Verse 16, back in Exodus. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No matter, no manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat. The only work you can do is eating thing. So take some time off, take, take a break, eat food. 
and do that. The convocation word is the first use of it in the Bible. It's a, it's a reading that you do together, a mikra. So the word convocation here, and again, I like first uses, and Exodus still has a few of these. Here's this idea that once a year you should read together. What are you reading? You're reading the scriptures, but when Moses is writing this, remember the scriptures aren't written. So what are they reading? They must be reading these scrolls that would have been collected by the Jewish people that would have been the scrolls of those toldoths. So they would have had a collection of toldoths, which we now call the book of Genesis, and they're supposed to be reading these together. So they were reading the word just like we are tonight. Only can be prepared by you. Who is you again in verse 3? The you is the entire congregation of Israel. Anyone who calls himself a children of God should be meeting, reading the word, and think about this. This is a feast. They should be eating together. Why do we meet for Bible study every week? To read the word and to eat together. And I can't believe how the church has forgotten the eating part. Because for some of us, it's a total blessing. I love eating your food. And it's been so awesome every week to go around and be blessed. And it's a way we love each other. Let me cook for you. Let me make something that you'll consume. It's holy and it's spiritual. And we, I joke about it, but it's an amazing thing to feed somebody and see other people blessed by something you've put together and put work in on, right? And Danny's saying, this is how I love people. This is how I bless people. That's totally true. And God feels the same way. They don't just waste this lamb. They eat it together. And they're supposed to do this convocation, this mikra. You're supposed to eat and read the word together. And it's a powerful thing, right? Can only be prepared by you. Nobody can do this for you. You can't substitute eating and reading the word and having somebody else do it for you. You got to do it together and you have to do it. Everyone has to do it. So the Jews are supposed to do this. Later, this gets corrupted by the Jewish people. The Pharisees start to say, well, we're the only ones that can sacrifice the lamb because we do it proper like. No, this was supposed to be a household thing. You can see why Jesus got so angry when they were starting to sell things in the courtyard by telling people, well, your lamb's not good enough. You have to take our lamb, and our lamb costs the low, low price of 300 shekels, right? That's horrible. Think of the spiritual implications of what they were doing in that temple when they did that. That's horrible. That's telling poor people you can't be part of this, right? And so poor people can't afford to do it because the Pharisees have risen the cost of doing it. It's like having a church but telling people how to dress when they come in the door or making them feel excluded when they don't look the right way or act the right way or talk the right way or have the right haircut, right? How horrible is that? Like the kingdom, you want to read the word? Whatever. Grant's got his friend his work but he doesn't feel good enough to come to Bible study. What a lie. What nonsense. Who cares if you smell like smoke? Well, it's in our sofa, but who cares? We'll Febreze that sucker. Come hear the word and eat some food with us. You know, smoking might be 20th on your list of things to get rid of in your life. Let's just start by eating and reading the word together. Mikra, convocation. Verse 17, we get a third description of Passover, right? Um, it's interesting in verse 17, notice that we shift to you shall observe. God is shifting to the past tense. In the other ones that you, you know, it was this kind of thing, but now we kind of shift on this kind of past tense thing. For the Jewish people, this is future tense. For God, it's not. You know I like those little moments in the Bible. Uh, notice that the second description in this one both have the word everlasting added to them. In verse At the end of verse 17, we see everlasting again. The first description didn't say everlasting. 
So you're like, well, what do we do with Passover? Should we be doing Passover? Should we be taking fluffies into our houses and killing them? And for some reason, there's different descriptions of Passover where that isn't the case. And I'll get to that here after, but let me read this next, the, the, the third description. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. I have done this. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats leaven, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. By the way, this is the point where I just said, didn't I just read this? Like you kind of fall asleep when you're reading and you're like, I feel like I just read this paragraph. And that's when I started to be like, oh, there's three descriptions here. Holy moly, because it's almost the same wording. But notice the end on this one. Whether he's a stranger or a native in the land. Wait a second. So I don't have to be Jewish to do this? There's this inclusion of natives in the land on this third description. Isn't that cool? You shall eat nothing but leavened. In all your dwellings, you shall eat unleavened bread. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your houses, you shall eat unleavened bread. Strong emphasis on this leaven thing on this third version of Passover. Almost like the lamb has been totally done and in the past tense. The lamb's already been sacrificed. And through all of eternity, in other words, we're still in this period, we should be doing this thing where we get sin out of our lives. And we should be doing it even in ceremonial and symbolic ways. So in the first description, verses 3 through 13, it focuses on the particulars of the lamb, how to prepare it, how to eat it, and the focus is on that blood and God's actions with what's, what's going to happen. God is basically saying, here's who I am. The second one is a memorial, verses 14 through 16. It focuses on the bread. It focuses on it being everlasting. And there's no mention of a sacrifice. The sacrifice has already been given, right? And then you eat and you read the word together. Like there's going to be this period where Passover looks a lot like church, right? And then in the third description, 17 through 20, after the separation, another everlasting element, and the focus here is also on avoiding leaven, keeping the law. So either do it or you will be cut off. And there's this inclusion of Gentiles, strangers or natives in the land. In other words, anybody living in your home can do Passover with you as long as they submit to God's will. Later on, this adds more rules in Leviticus and whatnot. So 14th day to the 21st day, we hold on to this. Um, Compare verses 19 and 15, if you can. That Jew-Gentile thing um, has a little foregrounding, and that's, in case I'm losing people, like 15 and 19 are like the same verse, only one includes these other people from outside. The nation of Israel shall include these other people at some point. So this is total interpretation, and we're all over the map on this. Is this like there's one Passover for the Old Testament, one for the New Testament, and one for the end of days, the millennial kingdom? Or, let me give you another one, maybe one Passover is for this period in Jewish history, and one is for after Jesus, right? Another one is maybe the Father's version, the Son's version, and the Holy Spirit's version of the Passover. So you see these groups of three, and you got to kind of wonder, right? So is one Passover like a Holy Spirit Passover or not? The answer to all this is I have no idea. But it's interesting to think about it, and it's one of those areas in the Bible where we don't quite know. We have a Messianic Jew that goes to our church, so I was asking him after church, and he's like, huh, 
I've never thought of it that way before. And he was going to go home and research this for me and give me more information. But I showed it to him, and his wife even was kind of like, yeah, you're right. It says everlasting here, but it doesn't say everlasting here. So why is there suddenly no more lamb, and the description doesn't include that, but it does include everlasting? And the answer would be because Jesus was the lamb that finished that practice, but the covenant of Passover goes on forever. So what we're going to do is break the bread and drink the wine as symbols and do that in remembrance of Jesus, and the Passover was in remembrance of him creating a nation, and the Lord's Supper for Christians is in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice and the foundation of the church. The church in Israel look a lot alike, right? So we're going to see that when we get into Leviticus and we see the law, we'll start to realize that as exclusive as the Pharisees make it, being part of Israel, you just got to sign up and say, I want to be part of Israel. And guys have a little extra ceremony they have to go through, but anybody who really wants to be part of Israel can be. In the same way in the church, all you got to do is say, I follow Jesus Christ and give your life to Jesus and confess your sin and you're part of the church. It's really easy to get into it. And that's the way the kingdom of Israel was meant to be at the beginning. So we do all this and we kind of train our generations. The whole point of this practice is to tell your kids. It's to have a fun holiday where you teach your kids all about this. And I think everything after killing the lamb is actually pretty fun. Eating the meal in haste, I talked about how cool that would be for kids. Just grubbing it down as fast as you can. Um, wearing your clothes, your hat and your sandals and your walking staff while you eat. And this image of, we're going to run, let's get out of here. I think for kids that would be really exciting, but it's a way for these parents to teach their kids about it and about God's salvation. Verse... Uh, The unleavened bread, and this is part of preparation of it. When you cook unleavened bread, I don't remember if I said this last time or not, but I think it's a really cool idea, that image of the bread. And Jesus, remember, said, I am the bread. I'm the bread that will be broken for you. So you prepare unleavened bread in these big wafer kind of things. And it won't cook even in your oven unless you puncture holes in it. So you have to pierce the bread in order for it to cook properly. But you don't break it. You don't break it until the actual Lord's Supper. So even with saltine crackers, I don't know if you've noticed, there's little holes poked in them, and that's for cooking purposes. So even that image of this bread that won't be broken, but it'll be pierced, is that image of Christ that's going to carry through. It's almost like God made the whole universe to work for this image or this kind of thing. Even physics and heat and cooking are meant to set this up for us. And I just think that's wonderful. Um, and I'm going to read that passage from the New Testament, Luke 22, if you want to put a little side reference in. Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it. Crack. And he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body. It's almost like we've got these words memorized because we do it in church every month, right? But think of it in terms of Passover. When you're in a Jewish audience hearing this, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That would have been, unless you had seen the miracles and met Jesus and gotten to know him for four days, that would have been hard to accept for a Jewish person because that seems really like you're claiming not only that you're God, but you're also our sacrifice at the same time. That would have been tough to swallow. So Jesus had to teach this. So the Lord explains Passover to Moses three times, and then it's going to happen in verse 21. So we actually get four accounts of what all this is, because in verse 21, now it's the actual action of what's happening, right? 
I think it might have taken three times for Moses too, because the first time all he's thinking about is, oh my goodness, the next plague is death. Because remember, that's the first time Moses heard it. So he would have been spinning on the death thing, and then God would have been like, and here's all this, Here's don't boil it and don't cook it. And if Moses is anything like the rest of us, that would have gone right over our heads, right? All that would have been like, wait, you're going to kill people and you want to tell me how to prepare a lamb? It just would have seemed out of place. Anyways, verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel. He's following the commands of God to tell all the people. And he said to them, pick out and take lambs for yourselves amongst the, according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop dip it in the blood that's in the basin and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door until this morning. Jewish people keep a mazura and they hang it in the door. That's a singular object, mazula. And I remember last time I talked about the lintel beam holding up the weight of the house so it had to extend past the door. So these bricks would actually reinforce the beam and hold this gap called the doorway. Right, and the the beam, the whatever, the two doorposts. And this is the cool thing, because I had some. We have people at our church that speak Hebrew, or uh, and and so she comes running up to me afterwards, and she's all excited about the doorway image, because I did the thing we did last week, and she goes, "Oh, this is so cool!" And you know what the coolest thing is? I'd never seen that before, so I looked up the Hebrew for two doorposts, and she goes, "It's mistranslated in English. The word two is there, which is clearly the number two, but doorpost is singular, because it's." Mazuat or something is the is the word for two posts, right? There's a word for that in, in the Jewish. And she goes, but it's singular, so it should read two doorpost, singular. And so she goes, and I never, I always, I just saw that, and I was like, oh, so it's actually the mazula. That's the word. The singular is mazula, which is the thing. It's also the word Jews use for. And she's like, I get it now. That's why they put it in their doorways. They're doing that instead of the blood these days. So actual today Jewish people still carry out this practice, but they don't actually splatter blood on the doorways anymore, right? Hyssop would seem to be just an instrument. Why would they use hyssop? Why is that important? Um, And again, they do it on faith for centuries. They use hyssop to do this. In Leviticus 14, hyssop is still being used for cleansing, ceremonial cleansing. It's like Lysol, right? Or lemon juice, right? It has this factor to it. Um, where you put these things together, wood, blood, hyssop. Hyssop acts as that cleansing agent um, a a lot like vinegar might, if you want to get the image of the cross in there too. Wood, blood, vinegar. Something bitter had to be part of that process to really fit this description. Uh, Numbers 19.6, take the wood, the scarlet, and the hyssop and put them all through the fire. Test them all. Purify them all. Psalms 15. Uh, Psalms 51.7 symbolically moves this from a ceremonial tool to an image in our lives. Psalms 51 says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop is this tool at which kind of we wash things away. So if we need a wood cross covered with a perfect sacrificial firstborn lamb to save us, that cross should also have hyssop applied. There should be some sort of agent that does that. So, and I'll give you one more reference from the New Testament. John 19:29. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop, and they put it in his mouth, his mouth being Jesus. That's what the Roman soldiers did. So, it's not like this vinegar or like this thing, they actually used a hyssop branch 
and they dipped the wine in and they sprinkled it on Jesus or put it in his mouth. So it all comes together. And the Roman soldiers would have had no idea what the spiritual significance of this was. That's part of the cool part of the, about this too. The Romans perfectly carry out a Passover ceremony by the letter of the law and have no idea what they're doing necessarily. Or maybe they did and it was absolutely cruel mockery, but in the eyes of God, this is perfect fulfillment of exactly what should be here. So you see little incidental things like you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that's in the basin and strike the lintel and the two doorposts. And then you see the crucifixion and see exactly what's going on there. Man, when they first, first century Jewish people read the gospels, they had to read that and just go, oh my goodness, that can't be the case. They're just making this stuff up. Well, you know, go check with Luke, go check with Mark, go check with John. It's all the same. We all saw the same thing. Hundreds of people saw this. So whether uh, whether you do this or however you do this, essentially striking the lintel and the doorposts is making the sign of the cross. And when you do that, you, do, you basically make that happen. Verse 23, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lintel on the two doorposts, and the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses and to strike you. Wow, what a beautiful, this is good news. We don't have to die. Pass through at the beginning, verse 23, is the word abar. It means what it's translated to mean. To pass by, to leave something, to alienate. Um, You're going to pass through something. It means you're going to carve through it. The last time we saw that Hebrew word was when Abraham killed the animals and split them in half and waited for the Lord. Remember, he's you don't remember, you weren't here, swatting away all the birds and animals because he, he wanted to keep the sacrifice pure. But the Lord was not showing up in Abraham's timing. But at night, he came in smoke and light and passed through the sacrifice. So that's the same exact term in verse 23. Passing through is a, sac- a ceremonial action where you're passing through and accepting those sacrifices, right? And the firstborn sons are going to be that sacrificial thing that's going to save all these other families in Egypt. Because for each firstborn, there's second and third and fourthborns that don't have to get killed. So that one death accounts for the whole household. It's the same word that we see then when that happens. The next word, Passover, if you look further down, I forget which verse, in verse, oh, the end of 23, the Lord will pass over the door. Not the same word. It sounds the same in English, but it's not the same word at all. It's not even the same root term. That second Passover means to leap or skip or stunt at. In other words, if you become lame and you can't like use a leg, like if you see a dog and they walk with three legs, they kind of skip over. That's the word for that second Passover, which I thought was a great image. God's going through the land of Egypt and killing everyone indiscriminately. But when he sees a home that has this blood covering it, he just skips over it. That sacrifice has already been given past tense. It's done. He's just going to skip that house, right? Nothing more needs doing there. And I think that's how God looks at us too. That explains to me the mechanics of salvation. God, we've got the blood of Christ covering over us. It's interesting if the city of Jerusalem is, it's called a city on a hill, but you look at it and you're like, it's not a hill. This is kind of a mountainous region, but it's kind of the highest part of all these other hills around it. And no matter which direction you go to get into Egypt, you're always going up to get into Egypt. You go up to, or I'm sorry, not Egypt, Jerusalem. I'm going too fast. You go up to Jerusalem from any direction. Kind of cool, right? Calvary, the hill, 
is right outside the city gates on the same hill. The highest point in Jerusalem is this hill where they would have done crucifixions. The reason the Romans did it there is because everybody could see it. Remember in Rome, they lined the roads with crosses. The point of crucifixion is to show everybody else that person's dead because they're a, they're a crime, criminal against Rome. So it's a public display of humiliation at the same time as being painful and horrible and it leads to death. What's interesting is this capital of the world, the highest point is there's a, there's a, a lintel beam and a doorpost that has the blood of the lamb sprinkled on it, which has been cleansed with hyssop on which Jesus died for the whole world. So in the same way that lamb covers the household in Egypt, Jesus says you can all come into the household of God. The sacrifice of Jesus covers the whole world, actually sits on top of the world. If you think of Jerusalem as the middle or the middle point. And that sacrifice is given in that kind of way. Verse 24 says, And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, Israel, or uh, Canaan, or it will become Palestine or whatever we call it, just as he promised that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? That you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. There's actually a line that he gives to parents to say to their kids, this is what you say. When Jesus did the Last Supper, he was telling his disciples to say something different than what they'd said for hundreds of years. You're going to take this bread and break it, and this is my body, I give it to you. This time the lamb could talk, and the lamb says, I'm going to freely give myself as a sacrifice for you. That's so amazing. You and your sons forever, don't skip over the word forever, we're supposed to talk about this for the end of time. That's a pretty epic historical event. The Jewish people and we as Christian people aren't the only people that talk about this. The Egyptians wrote this down too. So this is going to be an event that even the Egyptians have. I'm going to go back to the Ipwer papyrus and read you a few passages These should sound familiar. Plague is through the land. This is the Egyptians writing. Blood is everywhere in chapter 2, verses 5 of the Ipwer Papyrus. They gave chapters and verses to this too. The river is blood. Men shrink from tasting it. Human beings thirst after water. That's our water. That is our happiness. What shall we do in respect thereof? All is ruin, chapter 3. All the animals and their hearts are now weeping. Cattle will moan. Behold, the cattle are left to stray, and there is none other to gather them together. Chapter 9. Forsooth. I just kept that word in there because it's forsooth, right? Gates, columns, and walls are now consumed by fire. Lower Egypt weeps. The entire palace is without its revenues. To belong by right, wheat, barley, geese, and fish. Forsooth, grain has perished on every side. Forsooth, that has perished, which is yesterday seen. The land is left over to its weariness like the cutting of the flax. All this stuff's happening to Egypt, and they're writing it down too. Do those things sound like what we've just been doing the last few weeks? This is amazing. Why didn't I learn this in school? What kind of schools do we have where we don't teach people this event? It was supposed to be remembered for all history. It doesn't matter if you're Egyptian or Israeli. 
this event should have been marked that there is a God, don't forget it. The irony here is all the Egyptians can think about is their revenues disappearing. Really? That's all you're thinking about is your money, your pocketbook? Chapter 9 says, the land is without light. Most people, I think secular people interpret the Ipwer papyrus as, well, that's just fantastical. That's not literal. But then they say the same thing about the Bible from a totally different people group. Or maybe the land was without light and they're actually writing down what happened, right? Jesus makes this totally clear that he's the sacrifice for coming generations. I'll go back to Luke 22 if you want the reference. And I'll wait a second because this is a longer passage. So if you want to flip, now's the time to do it. Luke 22. I'm going to start in chapter 15, or verse 15. Chapter 22, verse 15. And he said to them, With desire I have desired to eat of this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Remember, they're supposed to go seven days and not really eat anything but unleavened bread. right? They're supposed to kind of fast after they eat this lamb. And he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves, just like a Passover lamb. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it unto them saying, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me, not in remembrance of the plagues and God's salvation. That would have seemed heretical to a Jewish person. That would have seemed like a, a statement that was completely abandoning the, the faith of their fathers for generations. Think of how much impact that would have had to those ears. Do this in remembrance, not of the Passover, but of me, Jesus Christ. I'm going to be the new Passover. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Obviously making reference to the sacrificial lamb. Verse 27 in Exodus says, and delivered our households. Each household is judged independently. You're under a household law until you start your own. College people, you go off and buy your own apartment, make your own thing. Now the responsibility of studying the word and eating together is your responsibility. You can't put it off. Katie and Grant still live in our home. They're not responsible for making that happen. They just need to be obedient children, right? Thanks for that, right? You go off and you start your own life. Suddenly, the study of the word and fellowship and congregation, it's on you. God holds you personally accountable to make those traditions happen. I was so excited to meet Zach because I wanted to know the guy that wants to start life with his fiance reading the word. This is a guy and a, and a young lady who get it, right? You want to start a family? You want to start your own household? You study the word together. That's where you start. And like, I'm really glad to meet these people, right? I already knew Alyssa, but I'm like, I want, I'm glad to meet a guy that he's on board with this and that's how he wants to start his life together. It's beautiful. Where else would you start? So the people bowed their heads and they worshiped. End of verse 27. Then the children of Israel went away and they did so. <laughs> Just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. That's it. This isn't about death anymore, is it? Right? The 10th plague, the epic plague. We haven't even talked about death for almost a chapter. This is about a new nation. This is about people bowing their heads and worshiping. We were made to do that. We're created to worship God. And when we don't live for ourselves, it's empty. It ends in darkness and death. 
But when we do this, we just do what the Lord tells us. The reaction to all of this is people worship the Lord. The reaction to Jesus' sacrifice should be to worship the Lord. The reaction to sacrificing that lamb for those Jewish families, it should be to just worship the Lord. It's amazing. Death is coming for everybody, but it's totally avoidable. If your household, if you establish things a little different, don't have to go through that. God will skip over you. He'll just pass over you. Thank God that'll happen. This is worthy of celebration. We should write songs about this. We should have bigger feasts where we celebrate this. We should have holidays where we acknowledge this and point this out. We should make this a delight for our children by making little traditions where this is fun to learn about. This is extremely good news that all of the universe is designed around God and what God wants, and he's given us a path to live in fellowship with them forever. God's adopted children can just skip the 10th plague. Ah, that's cool. Verse 29, and it came to pass. Here we go. At midnight, the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. Remember, that was the millstone person last time we read it. Now it's changed to a dungeon. And all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Bam. This plague kills the inheritor son of Pharaoh, this baby god that's coming up in his household. Pharaoh loses his son. What's interesting is there's an inscription on the Sphinx. Is that how you say that in Egypt? The big thing with the nose broken off? Uniquely describes, and and remember the Egyptians, when they cast their spells, they would inscribe it in stone. But there's a unique inscription that asks for the other gods to help protect the Pharaoh's son. Probably because the firstborn died in this event. So they were doing new spells on Pharaoh's next kid. They were casting spells all around him to try to protect him with this sort of thing, right? So the firstborn of all of these people would do that. The heads of every household gone. Why are the heads of the household paying the price? Because they didn't obey. Why are the kids not getting punished in this thing? Because they were living under the head of a household. And I think this is an odd thing for the church in America to argue about, this whole head of household idea. Who wants to be head of household? You're in, you have this responsibility that you are responsible before God for what happens in your home. Head of household is not a male-female thing. Remember Rahab's whole family got saved after she helped the Israelites come into her city? She was the head of household because she took the responsibility to serve God and obey God in that home. Her whole home is saved because of that. It's not about firstborn. It's Jacob was not the firstborn. He was the biological secondborn, but he took the responsibility and took that on himself and his household was blessed. That dungeon piece there is the word bower. It means a pit hole. It's a common word that gets used all over the place. Egyptians, when they wanted to put somebody in a prison, they threw him in a pit. We saw that with Joseph, right? So it's a common practice. Um, what's interesting um, is that we have today Egyptologist David Roll has done archaeological digs all over Egypt, and there is a period of time where all of these dungeons, these slave pits, um, were filled. And they were filled with bodies. 
It's one of the best places they can find Egyptian records because they had to dump these bodies somewhere, so they disposed of them using these dungeons, right? So it's interesting that that word actually gets used in verse 29. I'll go back to the Ipwer papyrus again. Listen to this one. Forsooth, the children of princes are dashed against the walls. The prison is ruined because they had to fill up their prisons with bodies. We don't have prisons anymore. Forsooth, the children of princes are cast out in the streets. He who places his brother in the ground is everywhere. Not just families, right? This isn't disease. This is targeted. There's bodies. They're not writing about a plague. They're writing about dead bodies just appearing everywhere. This is groaning throughout the land, mingled with lamentations. There was a cry throughout the land like none you'd ever heard. The Egyptians wrote about it too. Why didn't we get taught this? I don't get that. Uh, R. Gray of the Telegraph writes that the city of Pi Ramses, according to archaeological digs, around 3,000 years ago was absolutely abandoned. The cause of this final plague, the death of the firstborns of Egypt, has been suggested as being caused by a fungus that might have poisoned all the grain supplies, of which the males would have gotten to eat first and had first pickings, so therefore the fungus would have killed them all. That's a really big explanation that requires a lot of faith right? Really? You didn't have any people that snuck out and ate before the firstborns? Uh, Nice try. I don't know why they make such desperate attempts to explain this. Here's another one. On the sixth plague, the boils or the smallpox scars, they try to explain that one. And they dug up the mummy of Pharaoh Ramses V, which would have dated back to this period. And this is in Live Science in April 2017, right? So Live Science magazine said when they dug up this pharaoh, they pulled it out, and the entire the entire body of Ramses V had scars from smallpox or some sort of boils that were all over their body. Why don't we know this? Like, there's evidence of this. You just got to dig it all up. So all of these things are things we should be telling our kids, right? That's the whole point of this. This great cry in Egypt gets recorded by the in the Bible, but it's also recorded in Egyptian records. This great cry that came up. Then he called for Moses. By the way, this is a stopping point. How are we doing? Keep plowing? Okay. Then he called for Moses by and Aaron by night, and he said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you've said. Verse 32. Also, take your flocks and your herds as you've said, <laughs> as you told Pharaoh, you're going to do it, and be gone and bless me also. While you're going, just bless me. I think it's funny that Pharaoh calls in Moses at this point, and he says, Get out of here. Just go. So now it's not that he's giving his blessing or consenting. He's actually commanding them get lost, just like God said they would be. And he gives them everything. This time there's no negotiation. There is no de- negotiation with death visits your house. When death comes, we don't get to argue or debate with God. The judgment's been made. So in Exodus 11:1, 1, if you want to cross-reference, that's where God said that they would be commanded to leave, and this is fulfillment of that. The bless me is, I think, just this brokenness of Pharaoh. And as you're leaving, just try to bless me, please. Right? He just lost his kid. I can't imagine what that would feel like. Verse 33, and the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. Why? Because the Egyptians don't know that their secondborns aren't going to go next. Right? How many people have to die before we get rid of these Hebrews? So when the children die, they shift gears totally. And it's like, get out of this land. And I think that's true in the world today. When we start talking about sin and death, nobody wants Christians in the room. 
right? They kick us out. Like, we don't want to hear about it. We want to blindly live our lives rather than hear about the consequences of sin. Get out, please. I love when that happens because you're just lovingly like, all right, you know, whenever you want to talk, let me know. Keep living your life the way you're living it. When you get to the point of brokenness, come talk to me. I'm, the door's always open. And when you run into people that are in deep sin, that idea of the door is always open, but they don't want you around. They want to push you out. And the Egyptians urged the people, verse 33, that they might send them out of the land in haste. Get out of here now. For they said, we shall all be dead. So they are believing you're going to kill us off if you stick around. So the people took their dough, not their money, this is bread dough, before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes and on their shoulders. They had to be ready to go, and now they get to go. Verse 35, Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them whatever they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Again, this is an image of, you know, you're knocking on the door saying we'd like, remember those articles of gold are probably little golden frog necklaces. So they're collecting all of these things. And most of the silver and gold would have been carved into the shapes of idols. So the Egyptians are collecting those up. And of course they're like, The Hebrew God doesn't like those things. Give them to us. And the Egyptians are like, you can have them. You can have all of our idols. Get them out of our houses, right? You can, you have favor in our eyes because here's the people without boils and we're being cursed. So this idea of we're cursed and you're not, what do we need to do to get your favor? How can we get on the good side of the Hebrew God? The, uh, what in the world? Sometimes my notes. Oh yeah, we're down here. Thus they plundered the Egyptians according to the word. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. Succoth is uh, the Hebrew word for booths or tents. We actually have a holiday of the booths in the Jewish tradition, but we'll get to that when we hit Leviticus. Uh, It's a camping site. Remember, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household. Um, There's... uh, um, Josephus, the Roman historian, actually recorded Moses as a, young, as a general in Egypt when he was a younger man. So he had authority and command. He would have known that Succoth is where the Egyptians gathered their armies before they went to war. So you always gather your armies outside the city because soldiers are kind of not the kind of people you want hanging around your cities. So you camp them outside the city. Succoth is that official Egyptian camping place where they would meet and gather and set up their tents. Big, large, flat area is where that is. 600,000 people. That's a clan or so. And um, if you do the the math on this, they're saying 600,000 men um, on foot. So this is a massive group of people. If you add women to that and children and even elderly people, we're talking about 2 million plus people. There's lots of debate debate on how do we interpret these numbers in the Jewish. Was that 2 million people or was that, you know, is 600,000 actually like 6,000 clan chiefs or heads of household? And thus we're talking about bigger or smaller numbers. Most people agree that we're talking about 2 million people that would have been packing up and meeting at Succoth to start this camp and to get ready to go. Um, So they know these spots. They're assembling an army. We've seen that word army get used before because God said your armies would leave. 
fulfillment of prophecy. They're gathering at the spot that armies gather. Only they don't, they're not an army of weapons. They're an army of Israel, the children of God. I love this verse. I was so blessed by 38. A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds and a great deal of livestock. Wait a second. It's not just the children of Israel that are heading out on this exodus. It's also a mixed multitude. So if you look up the word mixed, that's Arab. It means interwoven and knitted together, an interwoven multitude. In other words, Egyptians had other slaves too, not just Israeli slaves. They also had Egyptians that said, I really, whatever the the Hebrews are doing, they seem to be avoiding these plagues. So when they saw them doing this lamb thing with the blood on the doorway, the Egyptians said, I could see an Egyptian head of household saying, we're going to do what our neighbor is doing, Mr. Goldstein, because... Mr. Goldstein didn't get the last plague, and we also would like to avoid the last plague. So if Goldstein's doing a lamb and killing them and eating them together, we're doing the same thing. I'm just going to go knock on the door and say, what did Moses tell you to do? Moses told all the people how to do this. From the inception of Israel, it wasn't just Hebrews. Israel's the children of God. This is really important because when we hit the New Testament, we think of the Jews as just a biological ethnic group. God never mentions race anywhere in the Bible. It's really important to get that because in America, race is everything. It's the middle of our conversation. In the Bible, it's an irrelevant, definitive factor. What matters is, are you a child of God or aren't you? That's the only dividing factor we see in the Bible. So even from the beginning, Israel is a mixed multitude plus the Hebrews. The only reason Hebrews are important is because that's where the Messiah will come from, from the book of Genesis. So we got to keep track of the Hebrews and their genealogies because they're going to birth a Messiah. But everyone's a child of God. Remember at the beginning of the plagues, it was all of Egypt that was going to see the wonder of God. So this verse 38 means people in Egypt accepted God and became followers of Yahweh. Um, They threw away their frog necklaces, gave them off to the Hebrews and said, I'm coming too. So they get listed with the cattle and that's not beyond me here, but they are also part of this nation right from the beginning. Remember the third description of, of the Passover actually said, and if there's someone else in your house, they get to join too. So, or is that coming? We're going to see that here really quick. So this mixed multitude, a great many people. Exodus 5.5, that was Pharaoh's observation too. There's a lot of people here. These, these Jewish people have grown large. So we have groups of other slaves or even Egyptians that are joining this new nation. It is birthed out of a love for God, not out of biological or racial distinctions. So I think that's great. And I think the great deal of livestock is just Moses putting a little poke in there, right? Flocks and herds and a great deal of livestock. This is after plagues that killed off all firstborns of all the livestock. Remember the hail also killed livestock and livestock would have died from the locust and and livestock got abused by the lice. But they have a great deal of livestock and I just think that's kind of funny at the end of this. They had plenty. There were lots of livestock going out of the nation. So that means there were lots of obedient people that put them in the barn when they were told to put them in the barn. Verse 39, and they baked unleavened cakes of bread, cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened. So in this first Passover, they're eating unleavened bread because they had to. They don't have ovens anymore. They don't have time to let the bread rise. They were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor nor had they prepared themselves provisions, right? They ate that lamb, so they got a good full belly, and now it's time to move. Again, the situation drove out the leaven itself. A child of God can be disciplined by God in a circumstance too. So if the Jews didn't get out all the leaven, this forced them to not use leaven, right? So God's helping them 
do this first time around uh, what they're doing it. So they had four days with the lamb. Now they have seven days of, of eating unleavened bread, and then the armies are going to go out. So now the sojourn of the children of Israel, verse 40, who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of 430 years on that very same day, and I'm going to come back to that very same day as its own prepositional phrase, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So on that very same day is an interesting footnote or side element. It's almost like Moses wrote the passage and over in the column he put, and on the very same day, he's putting a pointing a finger at that, that we should see. And that's a pattern with God. The day matters to God, right? So on that very same day is when they came out of Egypt is exactly... Uh, when they when God said they were going to come out, so 430 years is a kind of an odd number. It, it's it's rounded. It has a zero at the end, but it's not what was told to Abraham. In Genesis 15:13, God said to Abraham, "Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, and and will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years." Okay, so is that a mistake in the Bible? You could argue that, but I'll argue it's not a mistake at all. It would be a mistake in the Bible if God said 399 years and then they were only there, or they were, he said 400 years, but they were only there for 399. Now that would be a mistake. It would be a mistake if it said you will be there for exactly 400 years and then they were there for 430. That would be wrong too, but it says you shall be afflicted for 400 years. It's also, if you remember, pretty darn likely that after Joseph, none of them were being afflicted at all. The first 30 or 40 years, at least the first generation, Jewish people were appreciated by that Pharaoh because they saved them and they were honored and welcomed, right? It's not until later that they're afflicted in Egypt. So that 400 years is still true, even though you add 30 more years, it's it's still true that they were there for 400 years. Does that make sense? Right? It's like a legit logical kind of thing. But 430 is interesting because that's the exact amount of time that they spent in Babylon too, which is kind of cool. God put them in Babylon and they were sent there, exiled there for exactly 430 years. So that's in Ezekiel 4.4, if you want those references. And in Ezekiel 4, 4 through 6, it says, you will bear Israel's sins for 390 days or seasons one day for each year of their sin. After that, turn over and lie on your right side for 40 days, one day for each year of Judah's sin. Well, this is interesting. So in this case, we have 430 years, and from Genesis, we know that both Jacob and Judah had sin in their life. And the allotment of time was 390 plus 40. And now in this time with Ezekiel, the tribes of Israel, both Judah and Jacob, Um, are being punished too. Okay, I'm going to walk through this, and this is for the mathematicians because some people are really blessed by math. I didn't do this math, so I don't take accountable for it. But follow me through this. 430 years is then multiplied by seven as the time that the Israel people are going to pay for their sin later on in the Bible, right? And Brett Gillette gave me this. So in 537 BC, Ezekiel gets this message there's 360 years remaining of their punishment. If you multiply that by seven, because in Leviticus 26, 18, 21, 24, and 28, it says that God's going to multiply by the number of seven, the number of years that Israel will be punished. Okay? 
So they had 430 years. They've done some of their time. With 360 years left, their sins are going to be punished sevenfold, according to all of those passages. That means 2,520 years, or 900,200 days, or 2,483.8292 years. Again, I didn't do the math. This punishment then comes up, or is due, specifically on May 14th, 1948. That's an interesting number. Does anyone know the significance of that day? Something happened on that day. The United Nations determined and agreed upon and signed and approved a passage that Israel would become a nation once again. In 1948, on May 14th, like the United Nations was reading the Bible and doing that math. But they actually did. So the consequence of Israel being diasporic or spread all over the place, the consequence of their sin actually came due on a date in modern history. And on that very date, Israel is made a nation according to the agreement of the rest of the world. Not because Israel had any power over it, but because it's going to just happen. Again, Israel's taken care of by God. They don't have to get armies to claim their territory. I'm going to keep going with the math because this is totally geeky. And again, I'm doing this math because Moses made a point. It was on that day that this happened. To the day they get to walk out of Egypt, when the Lord said they would. On that day of the year. But it gets even cooler. Daniel 9. This is in 539 BC. He's reflecting on these 70 years that they've been in exile to Babylon. So at the same time they're making predictions about Israel getting its nation back after this season of not having one. In Daniel 9, this is another prophet, makes a prophecy saying, you know, I know that it's going to end. This season of punishment in Babylon has got four years left when Daniel, Daniel gets this message from God. And he gets sets of seven or seven years. And in the Jewish, a, a day or a year or a thousand years are kind of all the same to God. And we have Bible passages that say that too. But in Daniel 9, verse 25, it says, so you're to know and discern that from among the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. In other words, you're in uh, four years, Daniel, you're going to be given permission to go rebuild Jerusalem. And that happens in four years. From the day that decree is given, you're going to have seven weeks and 62 weeks and that's when the Messiah will show up. That's pretty specific, right? So if weeks means years, and you translate that, we're told then 69, and then if you take that times seven, again, that's when the Messiah should show up. So if you take the Jewish and Babylonian calendar, a year was 360 days. So I multiply by 360. 69 times seven times 360 is 173,880. I'm recording this. You can go back and do the math yourself. The start of the prophecy is the command to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We don't know if that's when the command was issued or when it was heard. So we're down to two or three dates in history, depending on when that timeline starts, right? We're told in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8, uh, that 444 BC in the month of Nisan corresponds then to our calendar. That would be March 5th in 444 BC. If you add the 173,880 days, that equals 476 years and 25 days. Something happened on that day, and it got totally unnoticed by most people. 
a lot like most of you didn't know that Israel was created on exactly the day that it was supposed to be created. We don't teach that in our schools, which is amazing. We should teach that. Even if you're not a Christian, you should know that. So we put this date aside for Daniel's prophecy. That is exactly the date, March 30th, 33 AD, that Jesus told his disciples, I need you to go fetch me a donkey. And I'm going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's an odd thing to tell your disciples. But he says to do that. Listen to Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah. I just like the name Zach. It's a good name. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus rides in Jerusalem on March 30th, 33 AD, four days prior to the Passover. Jerusalem has four days to inspect their king, right? Four days to do that. Four days after he rides in on a donkey, the crowds have turned on him and he is killed on a cross on exactly the Passover, which that year, we're down to two years now, either 30 AD or 33 AD are the two years in which Passover lands on the day or on this on that Sunday, which is April 3rd, four days after March 30th. This is the day Jesus was killed. Even more of that, they believe that Jesus died at exactly twilight, which would be three o'clock in the afternoon, which is exactly when the Jewish people were supposed to kill their lamb at twilight so they could eat it for supper and prepare it. God's timing, Moses points this out in this verse, it was on that day the anniversary of that prophecy that we left Egypt on that day gets to be very important to God. And people didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah when it happened. It's only in retrospect that we get to see these things. It makes all these mathematicians go nuts over prophecy of predicting when Jesus is going to return. Even though the Bible says nobody's going to know. Like he's concealed that one. He'll come like the thief in the night. You won't know when he's coming. You'll know about the time, but you're not going to know the day or the hour, right? Because they look at all this stuff and realize it was all right in front of us. They spelled this stuff out. They should have been wondering what's going to happen on March 30th. March 29th, all the Sanhedrin and all the Pharisees should have said, okay, tomorrow our king is coming. Who's coming into town? And instead, they're yelling at Jesus' disciples saying, stop them from calling you the king. And Jesus says, man, if they're not going to call me the king, the stones on the ground will cry out and call me the king. I will be announced as king because God is coming through. And that's not going to change, right? That's going to happen. So the Passover in 33 AD was on April 3rd, the day Jesus was killed at twilight. It's perfect, clear symmetry and timing unmistakable holy hand of God in history carried out by both Jewish people that would want those things carried out and carried out by secular people that want nothing to do with Yahweh. It all comes through perfectly. Every time prior to this date when somebody called Jesus King or Messiah, he would say, my time has not yet come. This time when they call him that, he doesn't challenge them or say, my time hasn't come. It's like God, Jesus, knew the right day to come in on. So if nothing else, Jesus knew the day he was supposed to be announced as king. And he allows people to call him king on that day for the first time. Not only that, when the Romans interview him and whatnot and challenge him on this, he just says, it's as you say, I am the king. 
Um, it's really neat. So we have an eternal Passover with Jesus. Instead of lambs as sacrifices, we get God's son as our sacrifice. God's son is eternal. Instead of a spotless physical lamb, we get a sinless Jesus that's eternal. Instead of unleavened bread being cracked every single year, we get unleavened lives that we remind ourselves of every month for all of eternity. It's an eternal sacrament with God. The salvation is the birth of a nation. With Jesus, we get the salvation and the birth of the church, a new nation where anybody can come into it. Instead of circumcising the poor men, we're supposed to circumcise our hearts. We're supposed to cut off a part of ourselves and throw it away and burn it in the fire. And we're supposed to circumcise our hearts according to the New Testament. I think this is a cool thought. It's a great place to end, but we could try to plow through the rest of the chapter. How are we doing? Be honest with me. Are you getting tired and losing focus? Okay, let's call it right there then, and we'll pick up in verse 42, a solemn observance forever, and we'll do this. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, thank you for your word. Thank you for the stamina of these Bible study folks, Lord. We just want to learn your word and we'll go as long as we can. And Lord, we just appreciate the focus you give us, Lord. Thank you for the amazing complexity of your word that's so simple a child can read it, but has so much depth to it, so much perfection to it. Every word, every jot and tittle, Lord, you have in the right place. Uh, Lord, I just, we hold your word up and we'll live our life by it because you keep your promises. Lord, you've promised you'll return and that death is coming, Lord. And we just pray that we can be under the doorframe of the cross, Lord, that the blood of the lamb actually covers us and that we're in the household of God. We want to be your children, Lord, because it's only in your household where that judgment will be skipped. So thank you for the sacrifice of your firstborn son, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you that the blessing of Jesus is in our lives. Lord, we don't even have to talk about Jesus. Lord, you are Jesus. You gave yourself for us. So thank you for that gift, Lord. We didn't deserve it in any way, shape, or form. And you didn't deserve it, Lord. You're perfect. But you still gave your lives for us. You willingly did it and you explained it to us that this is an eternal sacrament between you and us as humans, Lord. And we just thank you for that. We take your gift, Lord, and we want to get the sin out of our lives. Any bit of sin, Lord, it just keeps us away from you. And it's corrupt and you'll have no part of it. And we won't be part of your household if we keep it in our lives. So Lord, help us search through our homes. Help us search through every part of our life and get the sin out. It doesn't matter what nook or cranny it's hiding in. Help us to have the people in our lives help us find it, to send the kids out on a quest to go discover where the leaven is in our lives and get it out of our homes, get it out of our life. Uh, Lord, you call us to be holy, not under the law, but under grace, because we can be. We're free to be holy. Um, So Lord, we just pray for your holiness. Keep us from sin. Uh, The enemy wants to constantly pull us back in. So keep us pure of mind, pure of heart, and always wrestling against that sin in our life and getting and purging it from our life in every way that we can. Lord, help our desire of our heart to be to worship, to eat with other saints, to fellowship and feast. Help our desire to be to hang out with you and have joy with the other saints that live in your household. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.